John chapter 1. Of course, over the last uh, several weeks and, and really months, we've been making our way through uh, the book of First Peter. And as uh, usual, though, when we uh, enter into the season of Advent, I like to take a, a break and, and help us to focus in particular about the glories of the Incarnation. And uh, that, that's what we're going to, to look at together for the next uh, several weeks during this season of Advent is just the Incarnation. And uh, this morning, I want to begin just by looking at one verse the first chapter of John uh, chapter 1 and seeing uh, what the Word has to teach us about the incarnation uh, here. 1, beginning in verse 14, we read John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, and the Word became flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, it is a profound mystery indeed, as the Apostle Paul calls it, a mystery of godliness that... God became man, that your Son, the eternal, blessed one, the Almighty, the King of creation, the one who is all-powerful, became a lowly man to redeem sinners and to reconcile them to you. Lord, while it may not be the case that we can fully grasp all the depths of this truth, I do pray for us in this season that we would see the great hope that this brings to us and the implications that this truth has for us. We do not serve a God who is unable to sympathize with us, but we, we serve one who became in, in every way just as we are knows our struggles and our weaknesses. So I pray, Lord, for us this day and in the coming weeks that you would strengthen us and encourage us by your word, by the truths of the Son coming into the world. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this season of Advent, we are considering subject that is perhaps the most mysterious of all subjects, and yet is perhaps most foundational to everything in the Bible and in Christian theology and practice. We are looking at the incarnation of Son of God. God in the person of the Son becoming man, becoming flesh. Apart from the incarnation and the union of the divine nature of the Son with human nature, the cross 
And the forgiveness of sins which comes through the cross is rendered meaningless, worthless. One who is not truly human could never bear the sins of men in his body and could never be our representative. A, another creature, if you will, could not be our representative. A species of some kind different from our own could not be our representative. We needed a man. The second Adam could not be of a different nature than the first. And so there has always been a need for one who is truly human to represent and to act in behalf of those who are truly human and who are sinners. And yet at the same time, one who is merely human and who is likewise stained with sin could never fulfill the demands of the law, never live in perfect obedience, and more importantly, could never pay the infinite penalty that justice demands. Only the infinite God Himself could satisfy the infinite penalty that our sins demand as we have sinned against an infinite God. Apart from the incarnation, again, the the uniting of human and divine nature in one man, apart from this, the benefits, the the ongoing effects of the cross and the resurrection could never reach to us who live some 2,000 years later from these events. The incarnation is foundational to the gospel, and yet it is indeed one of the most mysterious truths of all. It is not a truth that can be fully grasped and understood, and yet it is equally imperative that it must be confessed in all of its fullness, and it must not be misunderstood. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the Gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the Incarnation. The Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink said of the Incarnation, he says, it is completely incomprehensible to us. God can reveal Himself and to some extent make Himself known in created beings. Eternity in time. Immensity in space. Infinity in the finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. This mystery cannot be comprehended, it can only be gratefully acknowledged. The depths of the incarnation are infinite. And we will never reach to the bottom of them. But at the same time, the incarnation has not been revealed in Scripture 
and in the person of Jesus Christ simply to confuse and confound us. It is there in the pages of Scripture to move our hearts to wonder and worship. It is not to be a a doctrine and a revelation that is to to lead us simply to dismiss as too complicated. But again, it is to humble us and to lead us to worship the One who is eternal God and who has become man. The Apostle John begins his Gospel by introducing us to Jesus as both God and man. Not so that we see in Jesus one who is so distant and distinct from us that we can never relate to or know Him, but rather to do the very opposite. The purpose of His entire Gospel, He says at the end of the Gospel, is so that we may believe that Jesus, the Man, is the Christ, the promised King, the Son of God, the eternal Son, and that by believing in eternal life. And so John, in introducing us to Jesus in the very beginning as the God-man, is doing so for the purpose of showing us that the very God of all creation has condescended to us in such a way that we can know Him personally and intimately. Incarnation is not about us reaching into the heights of heaven to discover God, but it's about God descending from heaven to the lowliest parts of the earth so that He might reach us and bring us to Himself. So I want us to just spend some time over these next few weeks looking at various passages that Scripture presents to to teach us about the glories and the mysteries of the incarnation of Christ. And we'll begin with this single text in John chapter 1, verse 14. Really just the first part of this verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I want to just make three observations about this text with you this morning. First of all, notice simply who the subject of this verse is. Who is being spoken of? It's the Word in this same verse as the Son. Son of God. John says again, we have seen His glory. glory of the Word with His glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father. Or the begotten Son. This is of course one of the, the names that to describe the second person of the triune God, the Son. 
many reasons why he describes him in this way. Some have, some have argued that John here is being influenced by Greek philosophy. Because in Greek philosophy, the word or the logos stood for the divine reason or the logic that gave order to all things in creation. So it's argued that John is adopting that Greek philosophical concept and applying it to Jesus. I've argued that there's influence here from the Jewish Aramaic Targums, which were Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, and which would have been read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And they, they point to being the main influence here because in the Targums, the, the Mimra of the Lord, of the Word of the Lord, was this mediating figure that was often present whenever God was interacting with people directly uh, in the Old Testament. For example, he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Targums say they heard the sound of the Word of the Lord God walking in the garden. And this Word is this personal, mediatorial figure. I think the most influential term for John would have been the one that he heard read every single Sabbath in the synagogues. The most important point here is that for John, the Word is identified with the Creator. With God. Word is divine. Thus the Son is divine. He is the one who was there at the beginning of creation and indeed the one who was there before creation. And the Gospel opens with the words, in the beginning was the Word. John the Word is and the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 1. When we read in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3, God said, He spoke, His Word went forth. And He said, there be light and there was light. The intention of John for us to understand the Word which created light and all things in the beginning is the subject of His Gospel. The one who brought all things into existence. This is His focus. Son of God as the Creator. Son of God is not some demigod. He is not less divine from the Father. He did not inherit divinity because the Father made Him divine. He is fully divine in Himself. He is not also to be identified with the Father as if there were no distinction between the two, but He is as much God as God the Father is God. There is nothing lacking in His being. The Son of God is the Creator who was with God and who was God, as John says, is the exact imprint of God's nature. He 
is, as the author of Hebrews says, the, the radiance of the glory of God. Just the, the sun radiates light from its, its very essence. Right? So also is, is the sun, the, the Son of God, the radiant glory of God. But unlike the rays of the sun, when the Son of God radiates, He shines forth the very image of God. He's not a shadow of God. He's not a kind of figureless hologram. He is in Himself the fullness of God. Paul himself says that, that all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. We cannot get this wrong. We cannot, in an attempt to understand the lesser status, some lesser being from God the Father, is in every single way fully divine. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this again is the subject of John's Gospel when he says, and the Word became flesh. Notice, secondly, that this very same word, again, became flesh. He became human. He became just like you and me. Just like we who are here in this place. Flesh and blood. You can touch Him. You can speak with Him. You can eat with Him. Breathes. He lives just like you and I. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. In the incarnation, the Son of God did not cease being God. He did not lay aside His divinity. From all eternity, He has had a divine nature, and that did not end in the incarnation. What happened in the incarnation of the Son is that He entered into His creation as fully human. He took on a new nature. He took on a human nature. That is what was new in the incarnation of Christ. That was the chief mystery of God's saving works. That the Son of God, fully divine, in entering into His creation, became fully human. The Son of God took upon Himself a new nature without ever laying aside His divine nature. The Son of God became fully man while remaining fully God means, friends, that at the same time, at the same time that He was the omnipotent Creator of all things, He was also a weak, helpless babe. At the same time. While knowing all things, He also grew in wisdom and knowledge. While upholding the world by the word of His power, He grew at the death of his friends. While being the author of life, he needed to eat. 
He needed to drink in order to live. While being God who cannot be tempted, He was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. While knowing the beginning from the end, He did not know the day or hour the Father had appointed for His return. While determining the cross as the means by which He would save sinners, He prayed that the cup of suffering would pass from Him. While being the object of worship among the angels of heaven, He was an object of scorn among men. While being eternal, He was mortal. And He died. These realities, and many, many more like them, are not contradictions in Scripture. It's not as if those who wrote the Gospels were forgetting what they had written from one paragraph to the next as they described the human nature of Christ in one chapter, the divine nature of Christ the next chapter, or even within the very same chapter. Because they are the true reflections of the mystery of the eternal God becoming flesh. In Jesus, He who is truly God became man. Now, I recognize that these truths can seem so otherworldly so philosophical almost that it can be tempting to just dismiss them. This is just this is way over my head. And in a certain sense, it should be way over your head. In a very real sense, it was and is way over the heads of even the angels of heaven. If you remember in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that, that it is the angels in heaven who long to look into the realities of the Gospel and chief among them is the incarnation of the Son of God. God coming flesh. The angels in heaven are in awe over these mysteries. So it, it is not surprising for any of us if this is way over our head. But you should not allow what even the Apostle Paul calls the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. That he was manifest. You should not allow this truth to so easily escape from your mind and your heart. Because it is the truth of the incarnation that the Son became like you and me that us, among other things, the extent to which God Himself can sympathize with us, can know our pain, can know our struggles. There's a great example of this in Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews is encouraging the believers that he's writing to to hold fast to their confession. Hold on to the faith. Believe in the Gospel. You've been united to Christ. You've, you've united yourself to His 
body. Hold fast to the confession. And and he's exhorting them to do this because they are in this moment drifting away from the faith. Primarily because they're becoming so overwhelmed by the pressures of the world. The, The real threats to their own lives and to their well-being, trusting in Jesus has brought to this. This is their constant temptation. Am I going to be faithful to the Lord at even great personal cost to myself? Or am I going to just ease back into Judaism, save my own skin. And there's a million different forms of this very same temptation that you and I face almost every day. Am I going to be faithful? Or am I going to just make little modifications? That's how it always It's hardly ever the case that anyone just in a moment decides to just up and abandon all things they have believed in. It's a slow, steady drift with one modification after the next. One compromise after the next. The Lord will not mind if I do not obey in this respect because he understands the pressures I'm facing from the world. This is a constant temptation guarded against. And the author of Hebrews speaking to this very issue says in chapter 4, this verse 15, he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't get caught up in that last part there. It's very easy. Yet without sin. To to just then dismiss him and say, he, he he doesn't know, he doesn't understand. That's not the point there. We need a sinless Savior. We need Him to be He who is yet without sin. But notice, again, what he says there. He says, in every respect, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. What does this mean? He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Being fully human means that he understands the pressure of temptation. The real spiritual battle of persevering in faithfulness is a battle that he's gone through. That he's experienced. He's tasted. 
And so when we're praying to Him in the midst of these various temptations, we're not praying to a God who's uninterested because He's so different from us. We're praying to our great High Priest who has real concern and who desires to supply us with our every need and with real spiritual strength because He's been there. He's been there. A woman who's had a miscarriage before. When she hears someone else that she knows, another woman has had a miscarriage, she can't be indifferent to that. She's been there. She's gone through the pain. She's gone through the grief. And she held reach out and to strengthen a friend who is now in the midst of such a trial. And it's the same with Jesus. Because of His humanity, He's been there. Everything you've gone through or that you will go through, He's been there. He knows it. He knows what it feels like. He's been tempted He's been sad. He's grieved. He's been hurt. He's been sick. I once said, don't forget this. I love this. Jesus coughed. God coughed. Think about that. Yes. The divine. And he got sick. Like any other man. His body was weak. Just like yours. And just like mine. He knows what it is to be human because he is fully human. And the author of Hebrews says that that very humility is what should draw us closer to him. And in drawing closer to him, drawing closer to God. The word has become flesh. And even now, is Just think about that for a moment. It's one thing to recognize and to understand that, that the King of all creation who upholds all things is, is a divine, otherworldly being, the creator of all. And that's true. It's also true that the one who sits on the eternal throne of God and who rules all things is a man, flesh and blood like you and me, sitting in space on a throne. Now, notice thirdly and lastly, the redemptive aim of the Incarnation. The redemptive aim of the Incarnation. John says again in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word therefore dwelt has this idea of of dwelling in a tent. It's it's a verb here, but it's basically the the same exact word as, as the noun, which is just 
tent. He, he pitched his tent. The Word became flesh, and he, he pitched his tent and dwelt and tabernacled among us. And it's a word that is used here intentionally to remind us of how God dwelt among His people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, He dwelt among His people specifically in the tabernacle. It was this large tent that could be broken down and then built back up. And and you had a space for sacrifices to be offered. And you had space for the burning of incense. And you had the holy place. And you had the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The the Ten Commandments. The Levitical sacrificial system took place in this mobile tabernacle. And it was very literally in the midst of God's people. One of my my favorite chapters in in all the Old Testament is one that is rather boring to most people. It's in Numbers chapter 2. And in Numbers chapter 2, the people of Israel are in the wilderness preparing to march into the promised land of Canaan and God instructs them in how they are to arrange the camp. That's what Numbers 2 is about. The arrangements of the camp. It sounds invigorating. How he arranges it is that there are three tribes that are set up on each side of the tabernacle. With the tabernacle and and the Levitical priests being in the middle of all tribes. Whenever the people of Israel would break camp to march, the Lord commanded them to go, the tribe of Judah would lead the way. The tribe from whom the king of kings would descend would march first. And then the other tribes would follow. But the tabernacle was always in the midst of the people of Israel. And what this showed the people of Israel was that God was among them. And as long as the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was in their midst, God was with them and be there to deliver them from all of their and guide them to the promised land. In John's Gospel, John is drawing saying here that an even greater tabernacle has come. When Jesus dwelt among us, He says, we saw His glory tent of meeting was where the glory of God was revealed in the days of the Exodus. But now, the glory of God has been revealed chiefly in the person of the Son of God. And he's drawing on that picture. He's doing so to subtly communicate that now an even greater Exodus has come. God's work of the days of Moses was something indeed to behold. It was an act of grace on behalf of Israel. But even greater work of redemption has come in the person of Christ. And it is an act of grace that comes to any and all who would receive Him. And that greater work of redemption, of course, is redemption from 
sin. There are greater chains. There are no greater chains than the chains of sin. There is no greater, more evil, more malevolent a Pharaoh than the Pharaoh of the devil and the flesh. And Jesus came into the world to destroy all of them. To crush the head of the The incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation, friends, is not just some safe, cute story about a little baby born a long time ago. The incarnation, the very foundation of the Gospel is a declaration to you and me. It is God marching forward as the Lion of Judah, wearing on Himself the priestly garments stained in the blood of the Lamb and declaring that He will rule and destroy with a rod of iron any enemy who stands in His way. And just as the walls of Jericho came tumbling down at the sound of the trumpet blast of the priest, when our great High Priest came into the world, the walls of sin and death fell. And the only thing left to do was to burn the rest of the city to the ground. And He did that very thing at the cross and the resurrection. came to create havoc on an enemy who had created havoc against his creation. And he created a greater havoc than that enemy could have ever imagined. He achieved victory. He conquered it with the blood of the Lamb. That's what the incarnation is about, friends. That's what we celebrate in the incarnation. We celebrate the fact that the King has come. He has been born. He is of the line of Judah. He is the one whom the scepter would never depart. He is the offspring of David, the good shepherd who would shepherd a sheep who had long been without a shepherd. He has come to go before His people and to be in the midst of His people and to lead them home to the promised land. And so as He goes before us, friends, as as the camp, breaks down and begins to march forward. And the King of Judah goes before us. The exhortation to all of us is to follow the Lion of Judah. 
follow the one who is leading the way in the wilderness. Follow the one who has offered a sacrifice of his people once for all that will cleanse them of their sins and that will allow them to dwell in peace in the presence of God forever. The call is to follow him. And in following him, the promise is that he will lead you home to the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord together again in prayer. Father, we were all indeed lost sheep wandering in a wilderness. Bound in the chains of sin and death. Just as the prophet Moses came before Pharaoh and declared to him, let my people go, so also has the greater Moses, the one who brings grace and truth, gone before and faced the Pharaoh of sin and death and has declared, let my people go and has achieved our redemption. So Lord, as we await still the return of this king and as even now we are exiles making our way home to the promised land pray that we would not ever lose sight of the God man that our eyes would not be consumed with the world and that the pressures of temptation would not allow us and lead us to drift away but that we would be those who hold fast to our confession, knowing that we have a great high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses because he is like us in every way, yet without sin. And so, Lord, lead us to the Son. May we go to him and draw near to him in confidence.